Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, we've put this together on short notice. My name is Ralph Benmergi, and uh, this is an impromptu version of Not That Kind of Rabbi, uh, which is a podcast I've been doing for a while, and now I'm doing it at the Canadian Jewish News. Um, I'm, like you, going through a lot, and I have two guests who are going to help us with that. A couple of things I want to frame this conversation around. One, this is not a geopolitical conversation. We don't want to do this tonight. We don't want to, they did it, you did it, we did it, who's right, who's wrong, how does it work? That's not what this conversation is about for us. It's about what happens to us when these things happen. It's about how we deal with trauma, how we deal with grief, how we deal with all the different emotions that go on when these horrible things happen to humanity, to everyone. And we want to be able to share that with you. My guests will be able to help illuminate that conversation. And later on, if we still have time, uh, we'll take some questions. One thing I, about questions, make them questions. I've done this for decades, and people say they're going to ask a question. <laughs> they make a statement, but they don't ask a question. So when we get to the question part, try to make sure that you're actually ready with a question that you would love to hear an answer to. Um, I'm going to introduce, on the end of our row here, Linda Fishman, who's an individual and couples therapist practicing in the greater Toronto area. She's also the author of the book, Repairing Rainbows. It's the story of enormous personal loss and how to navigate the grief and pain that comes with it. In this deeply troubling time, Linda can offer strategies and a way of seeing what we might be going through that can benefit us all. As well as being a registered social worker and grief therapist, she's been a summer camp director and a college professor and an inspirational speaker. So please welcome Linda. And joining me as well tonight is Dr. Barbara Landau. Barbara's a lawyer, psychologist, author, and last December she was named a member of the Order of Canada for her contributions to dispute resolution and family law reform and for her advocacy of interfaith initiatives. Barbara serves as the president of Separation Pathways, helping families navigate marital separation, and is co-chair with Shaid Akhtar of the Canadian Association of Jews and Muslims. She is, the leader in, she is a leader in family mediation, justice, and dispute resolution in Canada. Please welcome Barbara. All right. Hard to know where to begin. Linda, I want to start with you. Can you, if you don't mind, and I know it's not easy, if you could tell us about your first experience with deep trauma as a child. Sure. When I was 13, my mother and two sisters were killed in an Air Canada plane crash back in 1970 when there was no social media, no idea whether or not the community knew the impact that it had on us, no outside help brought in to help my dad and I, who were the only two left in the family, to somehow navigate that crisis. And times were just completely different. But the one thing that has stayed the same, which is what I'm hoping to touch on tonight, is that people didn't know what to say or what to do back then, and I still think that's an issue. 
So when that happened with you, there, the reactions, your father's reaction, your reaction, were profound. Mm -hmm. Your father became depressed? I don't know that I would necessarily say he was depressed. I would say he was so broken and fractured mm. that he was existing and not living anymore. He just was completely destroyed. So he went on to exist in that he was breathing and functioning minimally, but... And you were a kid. I was 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... You mentioned something about people not knowing what to say. I found this very interesting, that people have been reaching out to me, non-Jewish people, friends of mine, have been reaching out on email, and I've never had that happen before, regardless of what's gone on in the Middle East or even here. And the first two people that got in touch with me, I was like, oh, thanks, I guess, I'm okay. And then I realized they cared, and even yesterday, I got yet another person who I knew, I've known and haven't seen for years, said, Th I'm thinking of you, our kids are thinking of you, I hope you're okay. So it was a very interesting turn for that. There are things to say and not say. Maybe tell us a few things that we shouldn't say when we're trying to help people go through grief and trauma and anxiety. I would say the most offensive way to start a sentence when you're talking to someone who is grieving or going through any kind of trauma is to start it with at least because there is no at least in any tragic situation and what people try to do very well-meaning I am not in any way implying that they're doing it maliciously but what people try to do is to take your pain away and so they try to look for ways to help you find somehow that positive part of this horrific tragedy. And by saying at least, they feel like they are somehow helping you look at the bright side. So that's the first thing. Stop yourself before you start a sentence with at least. I would say anyone who's gone through any kind of tragedy or grief will agree that that immediately gets their back up. There's another thing where people, you tell them and they then tell you their situation of it, uh, right? Those are story toppers, yes. Yeah, I call it one-downmanship, but yeah, story <laughs> toppers. Yes. People think that they're going to be able to connect with you on a certain level if they tell you their story, and especially if they think their story is similar or worse. And so often people who are grieving end up trying to comfort the person who is coming to comfort them because now it's all about them. I also call it, besides story toppers, the let's talk about me people. No, let's not talk about you. <laughs> Whoever is going through something tragic, and we all know people now who are really grieving and are in a state of complete trauma, this is not the time to bring up all of your own issues and your own history and everything that's happened with you. This is a time to focus on what they are dealing with. So... When this happened, uh, when the uh, ha Hamas uh, terrorists entered Israel and uh, killed so many people, what was your reaction? Well, it was very triggering, obviously. Um, when they talked about, 
you know, as, as a few days went on and they were talking about identifying body parts, that was extremely triggering for me because that was what I had to listen to um, back in 1970. Um, and my first reaction, which I'm sure was consistent with most Jewish people or people everywhere in the world was shock, complete and total shock and disbelief and fear, all of the emotions that knock you over when you hear something so horrific that what you just you, can't believe it. What were you afraid of? You say fear. Fear that it was true and fear that this was going to continue and get worse and more people were going to get hurt and that this was not going to stop. Like when 9-11 happened, as horrific and, and treacherous as it was for any of us to watch it, it, it happened and then it was over. This is still going on and the ramifications of that tragedy never went away as loss never goes away, it never unhappens. But that seemed to be more sort of start and finish in terms of the actual trauma and tragedy. This is still going on and it's, it's treacherous to have to constantly hear that there's more and more. Hmm. Barbara, some thoughts from you about what we're trying to deal with here and how we can navigate it? I think that, you know, there's no one easy way, that's, that's for sure. Um, but I think that what, what sometimes is somewhat comforting, when you mentioned people reaching out to you, what comforted me was the number of people who reached out to me from different faith groups, uh, Palestinians, Muslims, Jews, Christian friends who had nothing to do with the Middle East but uh, assumed that I was uh, struggling. Um, people from around the world, actually. And um, I think what was really comforting was just the acknowledgement that this is a, tra a traumatic situation. And it was amazing to me how far-reaching uh, this situation, how, how far-reaching it is touching people. And it seemed to me that the outreach was looking to find some common humanity. Uh, it was looking to say, are there other human beings that we can trust? Um, are there people who are open to comforting us um, rather than closing doors and, and putting ourselves into silos? And I think one of the biggest fears that we have when a terrible event like this happens is that, oh my goodness, we're there again, we're, we're victims, uh, we're on our own and we're going to be uh, endangered. And so um, I think underneath so much of trauma is fear and insecurity. And I found it so comforting uh, to know that I wasn't alone and that I didn't have to remove myself and, and go back into a silo. It's hard, though, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. something like this happens, and what you want to do is circle the wagon, yeah. right? To just say, no, it's us. And um, In journalism, one of the things you note is, uh, what about ism? Well, what about what they did? Oh, yeah, well, what about what they did? Well, yeah, well, what about what they did? And you can go back centuries of what about. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't think it helps people very no. much. But it, it seems also like a very human reaction. Yeah. What do you do with that? Well, I think that, um, I think it is a very human reaction. And I think that 
uh, the more that we retreat into isolation, thinking that we're re retreating into safety, that the safety is to be among our group, uh, circle the wagons kind of uh, feeling, um, I think the more that we have to face the fact that now we're really worried about our entry into the world again. Um, are we going to again be you know, marginalized, discriminated against? Um, are we going to be under attack everywhere? Um, and the thing that I find that on the one hand is terrible and on the other hand very reassuring is that other groups feel much the same way. I mean, immediately, um, Muslims, I'm thinking of the, the, the woman in the States whose six-year-old child was stabbed to death and she, she's seriously injured. Um, I'm thinking of um, uh, some of the uh, people that I've worked with in Israel, Palestinians, who are afraid to go to work, um, uh, who are uh, being threatened and, uh, and, and even under attack. Um, the fear and insecurity isn't just Jewish. Um, it, whenever there's a violent confrontation, everybody is touched in some way. Of course, there are the perpetrators who I am not talking about. I'm talking about the people who are the, the bystanders, the, 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 the casualties of the conflict. Mm. And um, what I find people really want to hear is they want to hear that not everybody in the world is our enemy. Um, it's kind of very, very reassuring. So I have found that just even a simple outreach, how are you? How are you doing? Um, is your family safe? Um, and you know, at, at some point I'd like to uh, share some examples of some of the ways in which we've tried to build a sense of community so that when these terrible things happen and we know they're gonna happen, we have a network that we can that can catch us. Yeah. I'm just curious though, what advice or support you would give people who are feeling, and this is what I'm hearing over and over, that the only people who get this now are Jewish people. They're feeling that at work or neighbors are not asking them if they're okay. They're almost just ignoring the fact that this is happening. You know what's so interesting is I get exactly the same reaction. Um, in fact, exactly the same reaction uh, from um, uh, my M Muslim and Palestinian uh, friends. Uh, they respond exactly with, it, it's almost like they have a checklist of this one didn't respond to me and this one didn't respond. They don't count so much maybe the people who did, but it's who's missing on the list. Um, I think we're all insecure. I think we're all fearful. And I think that, um, you know, my, my experience is that by and large, people want the same things in life. They want security, they want safety, they want hope for the future for their children. Um, they don't want obstacles in the way of, of uh, making a good life. And that's our common ground. Now, there are people who are hateful, there are people who want to destroy. <laughs> that's for sure, we've got enough of those. Um, but it's amazing to me how many people that we overlook or we don't, we don't take that extra step and say, I wonder if that person's feeling insecure right now. It doesn't mean agreeing with them. It doesn't mean you know, um, dismissing uh, the terrible events that have happened. Um, it means just checking in on the, on the level of, I care about you, 
and seeing whether the door is open. So I want to pick up on what Linda said, though, as well. That's wonderful, but I also think there is this other piece that gets animated in a situation like this <clears throat> where, as Jews, there's this kind of shrinkage of they don't get it. You know, this isn't the first time. Yeah. Uh, I know somebody who just came back from Berlin, and she was uh, going to Warsaw to, uh, to go to one of the concentration camps on a tour from Berlin where she'd been at the Holocaust Museum, and then she found out this had happened. And I, I asked her about that, and she said, I just felt so alone, Jewishly alone that I wanted to turn to other people and just go, you just don't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. But does that, as a therapist, is that a, what do you do with that when somebody just shrinks into that and doesn't have any magnanimous feelings at that point? What, how do you help them? Well, I am hearing not only from clients, but from friends and relatives that people are feeling very, very separated from people who are not Jewish right now and feeling as if people don't really understand the devastation that we're all, that we all have hovering over us right now and that we can't stop thinking about. So I think it has affected relationships and I think it has affected whether or not people feel cared about mm -hmm. and whether or not they trust now that their neighbors or their friends really care or, or understand what is happening and the impact it's having not only in Israel but on everywhere, everywhere where there are Jewish people and really everywhere where there are people who care about other people. And I think it's really an issue. It's, it, I'm hearing it so much that I can't believe that it's a small group of people. I think people really are feeling now that they want to be around other Jewish people because they don't feel understood or supported by people who are not Jewish. And sometimes I feel that non-Jewish people don't know what to say. Yeah. Right? They, they just, it's like in my neighborhood, there's this Catholic church that I walk by and on a Sunday. I'll see the doors open. And I think, geez, I'd love to see how they do, how, as a, my old rabbi used to say, how they get it on with God. And, and, what do they do in there? But I thought, no, but if I go in there, I won't know when to sit down or stand up and the communion will happen and I won't do it. And I can't go in there. I'm not one of them. And when I think about this horrible situation now, I think of some of my friends who are thinking, is it my business to say anything to them? What if I say the wrong thing? What if we end up in some argument and I didn't even know it, right? So there is some fear of the other yeah. and what to do. If we do what is natural to do, which is to retreat, I'm not uh, denying that that doesn't feel most comfortable. Um, but then does it resolve our insecurity or does it mean that we have to continually be in that uh, closed space? What it brings me to is you introduced me by mentioning that I'm the co-chair of the Canadian Association of Jews and Muslims. There's a story for how I got to that. Um, I, I had a Muslim man as one of my mediation students and I remembered that he introduced himself by saying, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a Jewish friend at my workplace at Queen's Park, and um, 
we were working on um, discrimination issues, racism at, at the ministry, and um, we decided that we would create the Canadian Association of Jews and Muslims. And he said, well, we haven't done that much recently. This other partner wasn't well. Well, when September 11th happened, I looked up his phone number, and I called him, and I said, Shahid, um, I think that you now, as a Muslim, are going to face the same kind of reaction that Jews have faced for centuries. So I'd like you to get a couple of your Muslim friends, I'll get a couple of my Jewish friends, and let's meet and talk about how we're going to address this. And we met and we wrote a peace statement that we gave at City Hall, and then I really liked the peace statement, so I went to my rabbi at Temple Emmanuel, who had just arrived as rabbi like a couple weeks earlier, it was her first Rosh Hashanah service, and I said, I'd like you to trust me, I'd like you to read this peace statement to the, to the congregation. And she did, but what, what was really behind it was that Shahid started to talk to me about the fact that as soon as September 11th happened, people were um, making insulting remarks as he went down the street. Um, people were, were telling little children that why didn't they go back to the country that they came from. Um, he felt frightened to go to work. He felt marginalized, and I think sometimes the people that we expect to identify with our trauma haven't experienced the same level of trauma, and so maybe we're expecting too much, um, and, and maybe, or maybe we need to expect something different, at least not to expect that they can walk in our shoes. I don't think Shahid could have walked in my shoes before September 11th, but now he could, and then he also talked about how he had to leave Pakistan in a hurry. He was a journalist and a lawyer, and he was a human rights advocate. He had to leave quickly. So again, it got him in touch with the traumas that he had faced, right. um, and, and then we could share our stories. I think sometimes we need to get to a point where we can share what it is we're most concerned about and where we need the most help, and it won't be the same. And Jews are exceptional in that we have attracted a lot of difficult situations. But um, certainly with the, the, wherever there's been intractable conflict, in Northern Ireland, in Rwanda, in Israel, in many places, I think there are partners who know what it is to experience fear and insecurity. When you had some things that we shouldn't say or not say when we're dealing with people with trauma. So in this situation, mm -hmm. if there's somebody who wants to ally themselves with what we're going through, are there ways they should approach it and not approach it? Do you have advice for them? Well, I think your point, Barbara, about maybe our expectations are unrealistic. People don't understand yeah. trauma unless they have experienced it. I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. And most people, once they do go through a terrible loss, they will be honest enough to say, I really had no idea it would be this terrible. So I completely agree, completely agree with your point. So to that, I think, yes, telling people that when they say, oh, hey, how was your weekend after the Thanksgiving weekend, when I think a lot of people felt really sort of betrayed when they were asked that question, would yes. be to just explain that it's really hard to explain what kind of weekend it was because it was so traumatizing. And maybe give people a chance to learn a little bit more about what it was like. Yeah. Is there a fear that you might like 
if you go, you, you, it was a horrible weekend. How was your weekend? Well, it was a horrible weekend. Did you, don't you know what happened? You could shut that person down without meaning to, right? right. So it's very tricky to be, be doing that. What's the role of intergenerational trauma in all of this when, when, when this massacre happened? What, 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 what happened for, for, for Jewish people in that, do you think? I think that there's a, a real uh, anxiety about exposing your children to the kind of trauma that's happening, and we want them to not know too much. Um, and yet, and that's true before this particular trauma. We've really protected our children in our synagogues and, and educational things from knowing too much about the conflicts that are going on and the, the cycles of violence and the, uh, you know, this person's expectations, that person's expectations. And the result is they end up going to university and suddenly facing, uh, you know, uh, anti-Semitism and, and, uh, and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, insecurity. Um, and they're not prepared. So um, the intergenerational thing, I, I, I just, I think the, the best thing you can do is to give people an opportunity to learn about their, the situation in pieces, in, in lump-sized pieces, depending on their age and their background, and, and in a comforting way, in a way that builds in truth with, with support. Um, but I don't think not, not educating people is a way of, of giving them the tools yeah. that they need. It's a, it's a difficult, it's a balance. I mean, I, I have four, four kids. Yeah. But when I was eight at Beth Shalom Synagogue, we were seeing films of the Holocaust, and my yeah, teachers oh, were yeah. all Holocaust survivors. Oh, and I'm, yeah, I'm not, no. And it was too late to do anything about that. Right. I just was watching it and yeah. like, what's wrong with people? Absolutely. What, 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 how could this, how could, this kind of evil exists. Absolutely. And yeah. so that was up, like with no buffer, that was just boom, it's yours. And I've always struggled with what do I tell my kids? Because the other part of some of this trauma is so, it feels so hopeless. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, people can actually be that viciously awful, and we happen to be one of those groups, right? So if I walk down the street with a keeper on my head, am I now a target? Right. Well, at any time, not yeah. just this well, week. See, I, th I thought about coming with my bag that says Temple Emmanuel. Right. You have like to I, think about that. Yeah, I, I had a thought about Do it. Do I identify? Yeah. But what is, for, so for children, if people are tr yeah. who, who are listening are trying to figure out, well, what do I tell my kids about what happened just now? Do, how much do we tell them? How, how old is, is old enough? I don't, do you want to say something? Then I'll, I wanted to share something. Well, what I'm advising people to do now <clears throat> is, first of all, to limit the amount of social media that is playing right. in the house and the news. It has to be turned off. And people have to be okay with that. They have to not feel guilty, which I know that because you know, we feel like if we turn off the news, then somehow when we go do something normal, somehow we're not being mm -hmm. loyal to the people who are living this nightmare. Mm -hmm. But I think that studies have shown that the more exposure you have to the media during this horrific time with all these graphic details and gruesome videos, you're just gonna have more chance of developing PTSD and all kinds of long-term effects. And the effects on kids are even worse. So 
what I'm suggesting is that people try to do some normal things, like the first Friday night after the Thanksgiving weekend, I suggested that people do a Shabbat dinner yeah. because you can tell your kids that, you know, we're going to turn off the news now, we're going to try to be as normal as we can, but you have to show them through your actions and there are certain things that have to be normal. There has to be a little bit of a balance of the crying and, and fear and the kids are going to see that and then something normal. So. Well, it's also it depends on the age. I was thinking of kids that are uh, ready to go to university and thinking about all the campus uh, uh, things that they're facing now, the tra traumatic events on campus. I wanted to, to throw in here, though, the fact that um, I would love to see us um, spending more time when we're not at the point of this trauma and conflict bringing kids together from different backgrounds so that they do build friendships. We tend to live in different neighborhoods. We tend to go to different schools. We often don't meet. One of the things I do is I'm a spiritual director, I'm ordained spiritual director, and I counsel people. And one of the things I've noticed about spirituality is it, 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 it has no borders. It's not tribal. It's about heart-to-heart -heart relationships with people. Um, but what I find when under stress like this mm -hmm. is that we start to decide to cherish ourselves and not the other. Um, if they happen to die because of their, you know, collateral, well, that's, you know, it's not our fault. We didn't start it. And that all kind of evaporates. And I, I always lament that. You know, if we're in good times, we can feel like we can share ourselves with people. Mm -hmm. But these times make us kind of put a clipah in our heart. Mm -hmm. You know, like you think about Yom Kippur and doing the vidui, and the idea is to crack your heart open, mm -hmm. right? And to accept that we are all, in some way, weaker than we wanted to be and sometimes stronger than we thought we could mm -hmm. be. So. When I hear stuff like that, I really, I, I feel like it's the in-between times we have to develop it. Today, not no, going to be I the agree. best day. So again, we think of the times that where we're victimized. Right. We don't necessarily think about maybe somebody else is going through trauma, and maybe we haven't been sufficiently understanding. Like maybe I should have reached out to all the kids who were affected by that situation and said, are you traumatized? It's amazing how we... We want people to reassure us with our trauma, but we may not be quite as sensitive to their trauma. It may not be as deep, it may not be as lasting, it may not have been as traumatic, but do we want to compare? Do we want yeah. to compete? You know, yeah, yeah. right. One downmanship. Right. Um, we have a few minutes, and reminding that we're not in a geopolitical conversation, uh, if we could get some microphones to people, there's somebody up there uh, who may have a question, the good Lord willing, as Tommy Hunter used to say, and there'll be somebody over here. So do you want to go over there first, Michael? Okay. I uh, was hoping that you were going to touch on the intergenerational trauma yes. for children of Holocaust survivors. And I was hoping to hear a little bit about that. All right. Linda, did you want to say something about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think the triggering that is happening right now mm -hmm. for people who have 
heard the stories throughout their life about what happened and are now terrified that history is repeating itself and that they are, in fact, in the same danger that their parents or grandparents were in and didn't think that it was imminent danger. This is what people are talking about right now, that they are truly terrified that this is all happening all over again. Barbara, did you want yeah. to add anything? Well, I just think that, um, you know, all um, most of us know that uh, the, current, the kind of common understanding is that people who went through the Holocaust didn't really want to tell their stories to people who didn't know. They wanted to tell their stories to people who had had a shared experience. And so often there's a gulf of, of not understanding because all of a sudden they've, they've sort of, they've seen behaviors that demonstrate that a person is anxious or depressed or, or turning inside, but they don't really, they don't really have that basic understanding. Yeah. I'm not sure that it would be good for them to have it or not. You know, this is sort of a, a good conversation to have, but they don't feel prepared. And I think young people are suddenly faced with a traumatic situation and they really don't know how to cope uh, with it. I think that's, uh, or they don't know how to respond to the person who's triggered. Um, we have somebody over here uh, who wanted it and then we can go to the middle. My question is, um, do you find that there's, at least I found, so when my father passed away almost seven years ago, that was a different type of grief and loss that I felt as opposed to when I was watching on the news um, all the massacre and all the traumatic things that they were saying that happened to like all the people at the music festival. Do you find that there's a difference between like th that type of grief and loss and like trauma, grief and loss? Like is there is there like a, a fine line? Is there like a difference between mm. the two? That's a good question. I would say that in your particular situation, loss from your dad seven years ago doesn't just unhappen. So you go through a loss, it always is there, and then you see something horrible and traumatic, and it awakens all of that again, brings it to the surface. And your unique experience with grief is your experience. So I would say that for you, grieving and loss and all of those emotions are pretty consistent for you. That doesn't mean that other people experienced it the same way because everyone's grief is unique and individual. But for you, that probably just brought it all back to the surface again. And you went right back to that place of loss and devastation. I, I guess I just want to add to that. Often when we lose a loved one, we have some preparation. Even if we didn't expect it to happen in that way at that time, we have some trajectory of normality that, yes, they had a disease or they had difficulties and they accumulated and it's too bad we had hoped they would live longer, but it's more understandable. I think what's really special about this situation is it isn't understandable. It, we weren't prepared for it. And even though it doesn't touch us in the way that it, I mean, for, I do have somebody uh, who I'm very worried about who is a Canadian hostage, but um, 
it doesn't, those are mostly strangers. It's not, it's not part of our family, but it affects us because it's so unnatural. It's so, uh, really such an, uh, an awful situation that and, I think that's part of the fear, you know, uh, yeah. You know, the other thing about, when I think about anger, I, I usually think of it as a secondary emotion. Fear is the real emotion. And the desire to run far away from that fear is an anger response, a cornered person who's feeling like, no, I'm going to push back. And I think sometimes we end up in the cauldron of anger as a protection against feeling the true pain of the situation. Oh, I like that. Right? It's sort of a yeah. puffer fish reaction. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just, if you touch me, I'll kill you. And it gets that way. All right, we have a Well, can question. I just say also, anger makes us feel strong. Yes. And, and fear and depression makes us feel weak. So when I deal with separating couples, um, they often go to anger because they feel more empowered. They don't feel so empowered when they feel humiliated and... And, and, and in yeah. the Jewish identity, yeah. there's the fear of yeah. becoming the victim. And anger can make us feel like we're in charge and in control and it's not going to hurt us. And it pushes people away, so it's not always a very helpful reaction. Yeah. Uh, Hi. Um, first, let me preface it by saying, Barbara, I'm going to say something, uh, and I don't want you to take it personally, but when you were speaking, I found myself really, really triggered. And I'm trying to figure out why I was triggered. I think it's that at this point in time, I'm not in a headspace to worry about the Palestinians. Not that I don't care about them, but that's a trigger for me. I understand. And when I was trying to figure out why is this triggering me so much, I thought it's also because I have so much fear that this is a far more reaching existential um, issue that we're dealing with. And while you were speaking, I was like, part of me was thinking, are you kidding? Like, we may not even have Palestinians or Jews to bring to a summer camp. We may not exist. That is a reality. You know, when you start to look into the Tehran and China and Russia and where my head is going on so many levels. And I think when I talk to non-Jews, they trigger me in that same way. And I find myself saying to them often, you know, this is a bit bigger an issue than the Palestinians and the Jews. So, thank you know what, that's what I was about to say, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say thank you, and, um, and, and I really appreciate it, and I, I acknowledge that it's not the right time, um, and, uh, and, and I guess where, where I come from, that's where I get reassurance. I get reassurance by, by not feeling so alone and not feeling so vulnerable. It makes me feel less vulnerable. It may not make other people feel that way, and that's fine. All right, we, we only have time for two more. By the way, thank you for asking questions. Yeah, and thank mm -hmm. you for it's, it's wonderful. really good questions. <laughs> I, don't, I don't usually get, usually yeah. I get statements, but okay, here we go. Um, I actually, coming here, I was looking for actually tools on how to manage my anxiety, anger, <laughs> sadness, fear, that is just, it's like a, it's this crashing wave. And, it, and I can't focus at work, and I don't know, should I be taking time off of work to deal with this? Or I'm looking for tools. 
tools. to manage because I've never felt this before. I've felt anxiety and fear and all of that, but it's like a whole vicious mix yeah. and I can't separate it and I need tools. All right, so do we have some tools we can share? Sorry, Lin I'm Linda, being asked have, to add one more Linda thing. Linda has a whole list, by the way. Yeah, heaviness, like this weight. Yeah. And, and it so is. So I expected that that would be it a question that would come up and that that was why people were coming here because I think everyone is searching now for answers for some way of moving forward and being able to get through each day without feeling so paralyzed by what's happened. So I did prepare something. If there's a handout, I believe they're outside on the table. And again, the UJA has set up a a whole um, network of people who have agreed to volunteer their time for anybody who's interested in having one-on-one -on -one sessions virtually or in person. And I think there's over 200 people who have volunteered their time. So I would urge you to take what I gave this handout it's a starting point. It's, there is no magic wand. There are, none of us have ever in my lifetime, obviously I went through my own personal trauma at 13, but that was, that was a whole other lifetime ago. This, this feels so new and completely unprecedented, but I do urge you to use that database, call the UJA. They are we have all 200 people who are waiting to offer their services. Yeah. And I think it's very individual, you know, and, and so if, if we were to give, a, you know, the list will be helpful in order to look at it and say what m feels good for you. Um, but if, if we were to sit here and say these are the three top things to do, uh, I, I think it would feel very superficial. But yeah. I will say if... I'm not trying to be yeah. superficial and yeah. to simplify this because it's not an easy situation at all for us to say, well, here's, here's what you should do, but there are specific things that I think need to be done, and one of them is to stop... Reduce your media. Exactly. See? Stop <laughs> listening to the news and watching these horrific videos all day long and be okay with stopping. And going out for a walk and going for doing, doing yeah. something that changes the channel and makes you feel alive. And find somebody who's not intent on fixing it for you. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. guys are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> right? A woman says something to them and they have to fix it. So I, I didn't, um, exactly. my wife's always saying, I, I'm not asking you to fix it. I've I just need you to hear me. <laughs> And that's one of the things is respectful and I call it holy listening, where you're actually listening with your heart, not waiting your turn to say something. And by being present for people and finding a community of people, we do Shabbat because it, Shabbat is the miracle that Jews have given the world. To stop, to be, not to do, and to get together with people. And we invite non-Jews to our Shabbat table as well. And I always have to say some joke at the beginning, like uh, a little later on, I'll be swinging a chicken above my head. <laughs> because they're thinking, you know, I'm not comfortable here. But I want them to be comfortable with us in sharing because grief is not the, the, the owned piece of being a Jew. Grief is grief. And anxiety is anxiety. 
So people have some or other experience of it, and we can share that experience in support of each other. That's the important thing. And, and I hear you. I said to, I was driving in today, and I was like, I am not myself. I don't feel like myself. I, I kept forgetting things and going back in the house and thinking, Where, where's my head? Because this is, this is too much to just take in as, as a person alone, especially if you won't stop scrolling. Right, and, and that's just a, a shouting match on social media. No, no, you're the worst. No, you're the worst. No, you're the worst. It doesn't do anything for us. We're all, we're all hurting and feeling the pain of this situation, and it has made us feel like here we go again. So we have to work with that. We have to deal with it. Um, Can I just add one thing that I think is a really important thing for everybody to remember? That yes, we are all in the very same storm, but everybody is in their own individual boat. And that's a really important thing for you to say to yourself and remind yourself. So stop judging the way other people are dealing with this. And remember that some people are hanging onto a raft and other people are cruising. And it doesn't mean that we're not all in the same storm. Yeah. It doesn't mean they don't care. Right? Yeah. And grief, but, yeah. I remember when my father died, a friend of mine said, like, aren't you upset? And I realized he was expecting me to run down the street screaming and tearing my shirt. And I just said, yeah, I'm upset. But I was upset on and off, well, what is it now, 33 years? Because it's a relationship grief. It's not a moment, it's a relationship. And every once in a while, something makes you remember it. You'll be watching a movie and the, the father hugs the son. And I'm like crying. I'm just sitting there going, oh, right. He's back. <laughs> you know? All right. We are done. Um, I want to thank my guests, Linda Fishman and Dr. Barbara Landau. Please uh, thank them for. Thank you very much for coming. We truly appreciate it. Take care of each other and take care of yourselves. Thank you for the good questions. <laughs>